In April 2020, near the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic in the United States, Louisiana emerged as an epicenter of the disease. Mardi Gras had just occurred and caseloads spiked in New Orleans and Baton Rouge. But no place was more devastated than a veteran's retirement home in the town of Reserve. Well, exactly one month ago today, doctors diagnosed the first coronavirus patient at a veteran's home in St. John Parish. Since then, 43 residents there have died. 43. Then the coronavirus hit Louisiana. It started like a sneak attack, but quickly turned into an all-out assault. Residents at hundreds of nursing homes became sitting ducks, none more than the veterans' home in reserve. News reports detailed individual stories of the people who had died, but none mentioned George Washington Taylor, a 96-year-old World War II veteran who had died on April 22nd. Rochelle Prater is Mr. Taylor's cousin. She recalled something he had told her during one of the last times she spoke with him, a kind of last request. And so I would like for you to share with everybody that when I first went down to New Orleans to talk to him to see if he had any information about, you know, our ancestors, he did share. I said, well, what would you want from this uh, cousin, George? And he said, you know, Ro." The only thing I want is for somebody to apologize to me personally for what he went through as a World War II veteran. And his story went like this. He told a story of where he had gotten, came back, had been in the foxhole for days with dead corpse, and came back and got on the bus, you know, when he got back uh, stateside. And he said he would just destroy it, and he'd just sit down on the bus, and the bus driver got up and said, I don't care who you think you are with that uniform on that, but you know you ain't supposed to be here. And he said, and with tears in his eyes, this was in 2016, tears in his eyes still that long. He shared that he was so hurt. He wasn't, it wasn't so much angry as was pain that he got off the bus and he walked home. George Taylor died still waiting for that apology but others in his family had found him and were fighting for something more than an apology. They were looking for justice, restitution, repair, for a centuries-old wrong. Taylor was the oldest surviving male descendant of Isaac Hawkins, the first person named on a manifest cataloging the sale of 272 enslaved people by the Jesuits who operated Georgetown University in 1838. Rochelle Prater can recite the connections tracing her cousin back through the generations by heart. Because I promised him that I would continue to try to do my best to honor what he felt that day. And so as an enslaved person, that's, that's all he wanted from that was recognition that he was human. So he was mine. He was the grandson. His, his mother's name was Teresina Doretha Hawkins. And Teresina Doretha Hawkins was the child of Jackson Hawkins. Jackson Hawkins was the child of Patrick and Letty Hawkins. And Patrick Hawkins was the child of Isaac Hawkins. The story of the 272 enslaved people sold by Georgetown University, known as the GU-272, became international news in 2016, when current students at the university voted to create a reparations fund to benefit the descendants of the people who had been sold. At the time, it was one of the first concrete steps towards local reparations for slavery that had been enacted anywhere in the country. 
Welcome to Overdue, a podcast that this season will examine how archives are activated in the movement for reparations. The podcast is hosted by me, Lena Mo, and my colleague at Columbia University, Ty Jones, curator for American history at the Rare Book and Manuscript Library. Sometimes archives wait decades for the moment in which they get reanimated and reactivated. The Georgetown Slavery Archive is one such story, when in the past decade, these manuscripts were taken out of the library and into the public sphere. They were quoted in the Hoya, replicated and posted on the walls of student buildings. The names of enslaved persons drawn from the archive were chalked in Georgetown's Red Square. And in 2019, students voted by a nearly two to one margin to enact reparations. The $27.20 activity fee referenced the sale of the 272 enslaved persons documented in the Maryland Jesuit archives. Georgetown students voted 66 to 34% in favor of a new fee of $27.20 per semester, money that would benefit descendants of those 272 slaves. We've all benefited from the sales of these slaves previously, and I think that we have a duty now to show our responsibility in the fact that we did benefit from them. In the lead up to the referendum vote, posters with QR codes appeared around campus. Students who scanned the posters would find themselves linked to documents from the Georgetown archives. The implicit challenge students leveled was, if you want to know more about this history, it's here, in our library. Jesuits are good record keepers. The original census from the 1838 sale is still preserved among the Maryland Jesuits and the Georgetown University archives. But that is only the tip of the iceberg of documents showing the depth and importance of slavery to the university. There are financial records showing how crucial the sale was to the university's balance sheet. There are baptismal and sacramental records of enslaved people who were practicing Catholics. These collections were not a secret. Since at least the late 19th century, historians of Georgetown had reflected on the entangled history of the university and slavery. In the 1990s, some documents were put online and used in American studies classes. But around 2015, the amount of exposure changed. Archival documents were quoted in the student newspaper. The archive became the kind of thing debated in and out of class, in the cafeteria and at parties. The university chartered a Slavery, Memory, and Reconciliation Commission, and students across campus debated the possibility of taking direct, reparative action themselves. And the descendant community, GU-272, emerged as a powerful interlocutor for the university, demanding that it confront its past. What follows are a series of conversations that pull at one thread in this remarkable story. What was the role of archives in the movement at Georgetown to confront the history of enslavement at the university? Why now? Why were these documents rediscovered and put to explosive use now? It's hard to think of a more high-profile collection of archival boxes. In this season of Overdue, we speak with students and professors from Georgetown and members of the descendant community and alumni about the Georgetown archives, the deep divisions and emerging consensus about reparations on campus, and what comes next. <laughs>